0: I would also like to promote the baptism event that Pastor Curtis mentioned just a few weeks away. And if you call Veritas your church home, then we really would like to like to see you there. We don't have uh, many opportunities or many events throughout the year where we where we come all together as a church family. But this is one that we've done historically uh, since we started in in 2008, so uh, we want you to take advantage of, of, of this opportunity. So, whether you're an official member or not, if you call Veritas your church home, we we actually, I would say, expect if you, if you can't be there, you have got a really good reason. Okay, but we've already got a team organized to go and find people who who don't who don't show up. We know where you live, and we'll come get you. So please. And make it out. If you're visiting, um, you're welcome too. If you're our guest, you're welcome too. Your friends are welcome. Your neighbors are welcomed. Your co-workers are welcome. It's just a, a big party, and we get together and have fun, and we celebrate new life in Christ. So please make it a priority if it's not already for you. Uh, as well, if there are some who would like to be baptized, you know we know a few of you, but if there are others who... Have considered baptism. You'd like to talk with somebody more about that. We've still got a few weeks. And uh, either myself or Pastor Curtis or Pastor Matt. We would love to sit down and talk with you about what baptism is. And what is involved there. So if you are interested in that. Please let us know. You can email us from the website. You can get a hold of us on the city. Or you come up to us in person. You can slip us a note. Uh, whatever you want to do. Let us know. Give us your contact information. We'll make sure we get a hold of you in the uh in the next few weeks. The book of Genesis is divided into two sections, if you look closely. Chapters 1 through 11, and chapters 12 through 50. So we're getting through the first section today. You could say that we're halfway through the book, but those of you that are really good at fractions, you can see, you know, 50 chapters, chapter 11. We've got a ways to go. Chapters 1 through 11, and chapters 12 through 50, And these are primeval history and patriarchal history or primeval narrative and patriarchal narrative. In other words, the first 11 chapters that we've been dealing with is just primeval early history. It is God's dealing with all of mankind. It's everybody's history. Believe it or not, you can pick up Genesis and you can read about your history in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's going to turn a bit in chapters 12 through 50. It's going to be patriarchal history. Where rather than dealing with God's uh, dealings with all of mankind, it's going to focus now on God's dealing with a, a specific family. Okay, The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that's where we'll be beginning next week. Uh, But this morning, we'll get through that first section of primeval history. And our focus today will be on the first nine verses of chapter 11. This is really where I'd like to focus today. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And as you heard Pastor Curtis read... The first nine chapters of 11 are sandwiched between two genealogies. So in the middle, you've got what we would call God's judgment on Nimrod's city. That's what we're going to look at today. God's judgment on Nimrod's city, the city of Babel. But then on both ends, you have two genealogies, one in chapter 10, verses 1 through 32. And then after this account of Nimrod City in chapter 11, verses 11 through 32, 10 through 32. So the first genealogy is giving a foundation for what we're going to look at today. And the second genealogy just gets us from Noah to Abram, because we've been studying Noah. And now in chapter 12, we're going to start looking at Abram. And so the author is connecting all the dots for us to see how this family eventually begat Abram but we're going to look a little bit at this first genealogy that we find in chapter 10 verses one through 32, because it is foundational to the story of Babel that we're looking at. There's a purpose to the genealogy that the author gives us in verse 25 or verse 32. Look at verse 32 of chapter 10 at the end of the genealogy, Moses, the author said, so these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So he's telling you that what this genealogy is showing you is how the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. That's important because that's exactly what God told Noah to do. God told Adam first, be fruitful ...and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, This is an account of the earth getting filled. And then after the flood, God came to Noah and he told him the same thing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it has always been, it was God's desire to see people spread out over the entire face of the earth... And not just to populate the earth, but to fill the earth ultimately with His glory. Remember, we, we, we say that all the time. God's purpose in all things is His glory. God is after His fame, His renown, His glory, His name to be praised. That is the end of everything, and that's where it's all going. So his goal was not just to populate the earth, you know, but for his name and his greatness and his glory to spread out over the face of the earth as people who love him begin to, you know, populate everywhere and everywhere they go. They're obeying God, believing God, enjoying God, proclaiming God. And so God's greatness then spread so God is, is, is telling his people as you spread out be fruitful as you spread out be fruitful okay Adam Noah be fruitful multiply work hard keep and care for what I have given you worship me enjoy me this is what God calls his people to do so, this genealogy, when we first read it, this genealogy, it may at first look to be a description of man's obedience to God's mandate. God said, fill the earth. And then what do we read in, in ten one through 32? We read about man filling the earth. So is this an account of man obeying God? God told him to spread out and man spreads out. Well, What we find out today is that is not that is not the case. That is not the case. God's people will not spread out in obedience to God. God's people, we read, God's people will spread out as a result of God's judgment on their failure to obey him. God tells them what to do. They don't do it. So God makes sure that his will still gets accomplished. was a very important principle there. And that is that that we we think or try to frustrate God's plans, and that is really kind of funny. That's the principle. (laughs) You cannot frustrate God's plans. He can frustrate your plans. Christian, prepare to be frustrated. You'll be frustrated at times because you will make your plans, but the Lord will direct your steps. It's very encouraging, Christian, because you know that, wow, I look out and things look like they're not going God's way. And it looks like God's plan is being taken off track. It looks like his agenda is being thwarted. It looks like maybe the victory is not going to come. It looks like God's will is being resisted to the point where it's not going to go the way that we hope. And you need to hear and understand and, and remember That God's plans will stand and God's purposes, every one of them will be fulfilled. And we've got a perfect account here where man tries to frustrate God's plans and God frustrates man's plans. Let's pray. We'll get to work. Our father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the grace and mercy that you've poured out on us. God, there are many here today, I'm sure, who want to hear from You. And so I pray that they would hear from You. You put good words in my mouth that Your Word would come through and that Your Holy Spirit would help us to understand what You have for us. And I'm sure there's people here today who don't want to hear from You. I'm sure some know that and would acknowledge it and others may not. Now, my prayer for all of us would be the same. That Your Word would be what you describe it to be. It would be a sword. And it would it would cut through our resistance. It would cut through the enemy's resistance. And that your truth would come to bear sharply in all of our hearts today. God, we pray that you would keep us from the sin of Babel. God, that you would protect us from ourselves. God, that you would keep us from becoming an arrogant and proud people who dismiss you. And so, Father, we pray as our Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we move into chapter 11, I would like to draw your attention to one descendant in particular that we find in chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 8. And I'm drawing your attention to this one descendant because he is the founder of Babel, which we're going to study today. He is the the, the master architect of the city of Babel. And we find him here in verse 8. His name is Nimrod. Nimrod, which has come to mean various things. But here's Nimrod. Nimrod. If you remember reading before in chapter 9, you'll recognize him because he is the great-grandson of Ham. Okay, and Ham sinned grievously against his father, Noah. Okay, well, here's his great-grandson, and his name is Nimrod. And he's not a lot different from his great-grandfather. He's also, if you remember, Canaan. He's also Canaan's Nephew. Remember what we heard about Canaan in chapter 9, verse 25. Noah said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. So here's Canaan's nephew, Ham's great grandson, Nimrod. And it tells us a couple things about him. Let's look at what we see. First of all, it says he was the first on earth to be a mighty Man. Now, we may think when we first read this, as I did, that this means that Nimrod was a, a stud. This is the guy you want, a little boys, you know, t-shirts, right? It's Nimrod, capes, Nimrod. You want to be like Nimrod because he was the first real mighty man. You might assume that means a, a mighty man of God. So he's the one that you want to imitate, and he's the one that you want to look to. I don't think that's what this means when it says that Nimrod was a mighty man. There's men who are mighty with God, and there's men who are mighty without God. And there's men who, who promote themselves and, and their strength and their might, and we would call them mighty men, but that is distinct from mighty men of God. Nimrod is mighty, not in a positive sense, God mighty through him. Nimrod is mighty in a negative sense. This is wicked might. This is not noble might. He is mighty in a self-promoting, God-demoting kind of way. And he has a reputation in the sinful world as a mighty man. But he is, as we'll see from the city that he designs. He is a godless man. So he's mighty, like Nebuchadnezzar, for example, was mighty. And Nebuchadnezzar, who is a part of his Babylonian progeny that comes along later in his city. Remember how Nebuchadnezzar talked about himself? He was a he was a mighty man. He was probably the most powerful man in the entire world at the time. It went to his head a bit. Daniel chapter 4 verse 30 this is what he said Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty I like move away from him when he's saying that It's all about himself, right? He was mighty and he knew that he was mighty. Nimrod, he's mighty. He knows he's mighty. This may very well be a reaction to what God said about him and his family. It it is him working against and fighting against how God said this family would be characterized. Because God looked at his great-grandfather and God looked at his uncle and said, you're going to be a servant to all. Well, Nimrod does not look like a servant. But God said ultimately in this family, here's what you have you're going to be a servant to your brothers. And so what you probably have here is Nimrod sort of getting in in the face of people, in the face of God, and saying, I don't know about all of you, but I find this pronouncement of God, this curse to be a disgrace on our family. And I'm going to push against this, and this will not be my judgment I will fight that judgment I will you can hear him right? I will never be a slave And now he here, here he is in this line of slaves but he is in the view of many he is a mighty man. the thing we read about him is that the beginning of his kingdom that's probably key as well his kingdom the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So first he built this city, Babel, and then he goes to Nineveh. And we're going to learn in just a bit why he left Babel and went to Nineveh. So he is responsible for building two uh, very important cities in your Bible. And they're not important in a positive sense, but in a negative sense, Babylon, Which was the capital of the Babylonian Empire, and Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And these are two of the greatest, in their time, they were the greatest empires in all the world. They were great and mighty empires. They were great and mighty, like their founder, Nimrod. But they were also completely and totally wicked. Wicked empires. So here in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, we read about the beginning of one of these cities of man. This first ungodly city, Babel. So that's Nimrod and here's his city. Verse 1 and 2. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Verse 1 may at first sound repetitive. They had one language and the same words. Doesn't that mean the same thing? Same language, right. So they're using the same words. But actually, in the Hebrew, this is making a a distinction. Okay, they had a a couple things in common. Literally, what this says is that the the whole earth had one lip and the same words. This means that they had the same words that they, they all spoke in our church it would be the English language. They all used the same words and drew from the same vocabulary, but they also had a common lip. In other words, the source of, of, of where their words and their languages came from what was also common. What this is telling us when they had a common lip is that they had a common ideology. They weren't just united in language. They were united in culture. They were united in their ideology. They had the same system of, of, of beliefs, and they had the same ideas, and they, they had the same pagan religious faith. They were united in this. So, so the author is telling you that they didn't just speak the same way, they thought the same way. Same language. Same lip. It's like today you might look at someone and say at some point in your conversation with them, now you're speaking my language. Now, when we say that, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that the person just started speaking English. When we say that, we're saying, okay, no, now you're talking in a way that agrees with my ideas and and my beliefs and my convictions. So the city of Babel was interesting. They were totally a like-minded people, a united people. And it was much more than they spoke the same language. And so God is going to diversify them in much more than just dividing their language. We'll see. They did have a common language, but they also had a common well from which their language came. Same thoughts, same ideas, same beliefs. And now, as we read on, we find out what, what were those beliefs. We're going to find it out. What what are their actions? What is the activity? Because that's going to flow from what we believe. So we're going to learn what it was that they believed by seeing how they acted. The first thing in verse 2 that we don't want to overlook. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They settled there. This was wrong. This was wrong because God did not tell his people to settle there. God told his people to spread out and fill the earth. This is not a good settling down. Some of us use that expression settling down and it means a good thing. Oh, that boy really needs to settle down. Or that young man needs to settle down. Or, 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 or some someday you will settle down. And we may mean things that can be good, like uh, have a, raise a family and, and find a husband or a wife and have children and, and build a home. And that can be settling down. And there are ways that that glorifies and honors God. That is not what the author here is talking about. That kind of settling down honors God. These people settled there as opposed to filling the earth. So they are not doing what God had called them to do. They're resisting His revealed will for their lives. Verses 3 and 4. What else did they do in this city now? They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We'll take it a little bit at a time. They said, first, come, let us make bricks. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower. If you listen carefully, they're talking like God. They're talking like God. If you've read the first 10 chapters of Genesis, it'll sound just like what God said in chapter 1 about what God was going to do when He said, amongst the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. And then He goes and He makes man in His image. Now here is man talking Like God. Come, let us. There's no mention of God. Come, let us make bricks. Let us build ourselves a city. Let us build a tower. Now, technically speaking, you should not talk like that. You should not talk like that. If you talk like that without saying, if the Lord wills, I'll do these things. Guys like James, he'd nail you on that. He'd stop you and say, ah, you mean... If the Lord wills, you'll go to this city. Or if the Lord wills, you're going to do that this afternoon. Or if the Lord wills, you're going to do that tomorrow. He'd call you on it. Because the truth is, is that whatever plans we have, right? We understand that they are subservient to God. And ultimately, we want to be a people who acknowledge that God, thy will be done. Okay, your will be done. I've got my plans, but you're going to direct my steps. You start to see these are a godless people. There's no mention of God. There's no Lord willing, let us make bricks. It's come, let us put our minds together and let's start accomplishing these great things. So this does not mean that bricks are evil. It does not mean that a city is evil. It does not mean that towers are evil. This is not what God is upset about. Okay, These things in and of themselves are not necessarily evil, but We keep reading. What do we find out about this tower? A tower with its top in the heavens. What kind of tower are they building? Oh, it's a big one. A tower with its top in the heavens. There's been a lot of speculation over what exactly this tower was intended to do. And what they meant by its top will be in the heavens. Probably not literal. They weren't literally going to build a tower that was miles high. There's something symbolic about what they're doing here. Some think, because we know it started long ago, it could be the beginnings of astrology. It could be the beginning of the worship of the stars and the, the actual worship of the heavens. It seems to be some kind of a monument that is a, uh, that represents who they are as a people. It's, it's very likely that it was even a, a place of worship. Exactly what it was, we cannot be sure. But we can learn more about what they're doing here. If we read the end of verse four, because that's going to tell you what their motives are. So whatever they're doing here, they got the bricks now, okay, we got our bricks, and they they want to build a city, and they got this tower, it's gonna to be have its top in the heavens. Okay, why are they doing this? And it tells us what did they say? Why, why are they doing this? Okay. Keep reading. And let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So that last part is the explanation of what they're doing. Let me say that again and say it differently. Let us make a name for ourselves. Okay, why? Why are they doing that? That's the question we're asking. What is their motive? Let us do all this. Why? Lest we... You hear that? Let us do these things. Lest we otherwise lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, what had God called them to do? To disperse themselves over the face of the whole earth. So let me summarize what they're saying. Okay, this is what they're saying. Just condense it down. This is what they're saying. Let us make bricks, and let us build ourselves a city, And let us build ourselves a tower. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest God have His way. And I hope you can hear that in the text. Lest God have His way. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We don't want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We don't want to spread out. We want to consolidate power. We want to make a name for ourselves. We keep spreading ourselves out. We keep thinning ourselves out. Only God's going to be great. What about us? Right? They want to make their name great. So as we're reading through these verses, their true colors come shining through. Just like your actions and, and my actions. Just like your words and my words. We learn a lot, don't we? Listen to how you talk. You listen to how I talk. I watch what you do. You watch what I do. We learn a lot about each other. we're learning about these early Babylonians. Let's summarize what we've learned so far about them. First of all, they are mighty people. They are mighty people. They are powerful people. God's going to say so in a minute. God's going to compliment them. They are mighty people. They're industrious. Not a bad thing necessarily. They're self-sufficient. Not a bad thing necessarily. They are united. They are united people. They are like-minded people. Those are good words. In our we like those words. Unity? That's a wonderful word, isn't it in our culture? We love unity. There are people at this point who are at peace. We love peace. They are like-minded. How cool is that? They've got the same ideologies. They, they think the same way. They've got the same beliefs. They've got the same convictions. Right? No, they're not even having to tolerate one another. This <laughs> is good. They just, their life is just... It's all coming together. They're a mighty people. We do see that in the text. Secondly... We see they want to make a name for themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. Now we're going to see what they're united for. They want their glory, not God's glory. They want their name to be in lights, not God's name to be in lights. They want to honor and glorify themselves. Names are a big deal in the Bible. When it says they wanted to make a name for themselves, that's a tremendous affront to God. Because who names people? God names people. God names people. God names his people. We're going to see with Abram, he changes Abram's name, changes his wife's name, changes Jacob's name. Meanings are uh, assigned to these names that have great significance That's why it was such a privilege when God looked at Adam and said, you know what? You name the animals. That was a really big deal. A lot of authority that he gave to Adam. So names are a big deal. And here's what these early Babylonians are saying. We don't want anybody to name us. And we don't want anyone else's name. If you're a Christian. Right. What's the name on the back of your jersey? Christ. You bear the name of Christ. So here's the people. We're saying we want to make a name for ourselves and we're not interested in God's name as well. Third, they want to prove that they could achieve anything without God. They are a godless people. They are looking to establish a city. They are looking to establish a kingdom without God. They are looking to do Great things without God. And here they are erecting a monument that is meant to symbolize this. We don't need God. Look what we can do. Put our minds together. Put our work together. Put our hearts together. And look at what we're able to do. What is the message that's going forth from Babel? It's we can do great things apart from God. We do not need In fact, God, we don't need you to come down to us. Thank you very much. We can build a tower right up into the heavens. We can get to you on our own. No help needed. God. They're an arrogant, arrogant people. So what you have here, remember the family that we're looking at. There were three sons from Noah, Shem, Ham, and and Japheth. Okay, We're looking now at the line of, of Ham. And from the line of Ham comes many great enemies of God and his people. And there you have a descendant named Nimrod. And he's establishing this kind of a city. So what we have here is a portrait of a godless family. It's a portrait of a godless family. It's unfortunate that they don't respond to God the way they should. I mean, here God has said to Noah and his family, which includes this family, this line of Ham, and God said to all of them, right? Glorify Me. Spread out. Be fruitful. Multiply. Worship Me. Enjoy Me. I'm your God. You're My people. And then, because of the rebellion in Ham and his godlessness... And the future godlessness of his descendants. God said to this family, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So God doesn't let him out of anything. You are still to honor me, to glorify me, to worship me. This is God's call on all people multiply, fill the earth. But this family, because of you and because of your rebellion and this rebellion that you're going to pass down to all your kids and all your kids, this is a cursed family and you will be a servant to all. Now, there are two ways to respond to God when He does something like this. And there are two ways that people respond in your Bible to God when He does things like this. One is to cry out for mercy and the other is to shake your fist at God what does Nimrod do? He shakes his fist at God. God is a merciful God. Remember these Scriptures? Leviticus 26.40 But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And you see in the Bible, people from cursed lines become godly people. God is a loving and merciful God and he's willing to forgive. There's no crying out for mercy here. They just dig their heels in. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So one reaction is for these people and for Nimrod and for his family to plead with God for mercy. Say, God, be merciful to us. We have sinned greatly. Our fathers have sinned greatly. Our grandfathers have sinned greatly. Forgive our sin and deal with us according to your steadfast love. That is one way to respond. And the other is to shake our fist. To say to God, we'll show you, God. We'll show you, will defy you, will defy your judgments, will beat the odds. You will not rule over us. We will do great things without you. God, you underestimate the power of the human spirit. God, you underestimate our abilities. We will take care of our own problems. We do not need you. James Boyce says so. It creates the arts, raises an army, builds its cities, and marches out to make a name for itself in defiance of God's decrees. The tower is a symbol of human autonomy. And the city builders see themselves as determining and establishing their own destiny without any reference to the Lord. We don't need you, God. And so, what is this society beginning to do? Let's take God out of the society. Let's not mention him. Let's not talk about him. What's next? The laws prohibiting such things? Yes, that is what's next. We don't need you, God. Such a funny thing to say. Because you need God to say that. Like, well, you need a mouth to say that. God made your mouth. You need air to breathe into your lungs. You need a mind to conceive the words. You need God to have the ability to say you don't need God. So we have people who believe they do not need God, but know they do need God and want God to know that they don't need Him. It's like the people in the world today who do not believe in God and they want Him to know that. That is is the spirit of much atheism today. We do not believe in God. There is no God. And we want everyone, including God, to know how we feel about Him. (laughs) This is what we find in Babel. people who are shaking their fist at God. So how does God respond? I hope you have enjoyed and learned in seeing how God responds to the spread of sin in the book of Genesis. I mean, this is the fourth major outbreak of sin. And there are all these similarities because there's this great sin, and then they get caught, and then God discovers it, and then God makes some kind of a judgment. It it was in the garden when Adam and Eve fell. Then it was Cain and Abel, and it was the flood. And now here's the fourth one before we get into the second patriarchal history, and it is the Tower of Babel. And so here, as always, divine resolve counters human resolve. What is God's counter punch? It is always good and amazing. Here's man trying to frustrate the plans of God. It says that our God is in the heaven and, and he laughs at that. He, that's, that's a joke to God. That's funny to God. That's what his stand-up comics do. They talk about our great plans of how we're going to frustrate God. That gives him a chuckle. God will frustrate the plans of man. He'll frustrate the plans of the wicked. So here we go. Keep these two verses in mind as we read verses 5 through 8. So you remember this about God's character and His dealing with man. Because this is an example of it. I want you to keep Psalm 33.10 and Job 5.12 in mind. Here's what they say. Psalm 33.10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. This is our God. Job 5.12. He frustrates frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve No success. And now let's read what God does first. Verse five. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. This is great. You may miss this. I want to point it out so you can see what happens here. Here are these people, right? building this great, wonderful tower. A testimony of their might and their greatness. It is their effort to make a name for themselves. And so they've built this great tower, and its top is in the heavens. And yet God has to come down to see it. See the irony here? You see what God is saying? It's an anthropomorphism What describes God as if he was a man. God clearly isn't a man, but it helps you to get inside into the mind and the heart of God, how he deals with his people. So God came, the, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had, had built. And so the, the, the tone of this from God is, oh, would you look at that? This is patronizing. The Lord came down. I, I've heard you built this great and wonderful tower. I can't see it from up here, but I've heard its top is in the heavens. I am here in the heavens, and I do not see. But I, I will come down. What a cute, what a cute little tower! This is the tone here. That is, oh, look! At, bless your heart. A little little door there. You go in and out, and stairs. Little people, you can climb and sit on it. And wow! I'll bet you, I'll bet you could just see that for. You know miles this is amazing. Oh my cute little ingenious people he calls them the my little children of man. look at what you've done. Oh, I'm so proud of you. This is the tone here when God has to come down. He has to come down to see it and then the Lord said, very interesting what he said. Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is the only place in your Bible God sounds like a motivational speaker. Wow, we like the sound of that. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. We love the sound of that. That's right. Isn't that the that is the power of the human spirit and the power of unity? And if we unite, the sky is the limit, and nothing will be impossible for them. Now here's also what Scripture says. With man this is impossible. But with God this is possible. The the, the part that we need to To see here is that, yes, if man is united, and of one language and of one mind, nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. If God does not exist, and if God is not sovereign, and if God is not able to frustrate the the plans of the wicked. which He totally is and does. But God acknowledges here something that we know to be true and there is great strength in unity. There is great strength in unity. Here's something else that we learn though. Unity and peace are not always a good thing. Unity is not a good word. Peace is not a good word. They're not bad words. It depends, doesn't it? What are you united for? There's a time where God says that the people are saying, peace, peace. And God is saying, war, war. And God often, as He does here and in other places, God divides. And God scatters and God breaks up. Unity and peace are not necessarily good things. They are not ultimate goods. What are we united for? Why is there peace? What is it that we're after? What is it that we're trying to do? This is why God throughout history, we can, we'll can read it here, we read other accounts in the Bible, but we just know this in human history. God throughout history frustrates and destroys the unity of the wicked. Those of you who know history better than I do, could rattle off the downfall of the unity of the wicked. Because God does not always let unity prevail. Wickedness united will not ultimately prosper. Godless unity will progress to a point. Progress to a point. Godless unity may have some success, but as Job 5.12 says, their hands will achieve ultimately no success. It will be overthrown. The godless city will. The godless agenda will. The godless motive will. The godless people will.
1: How does God divide here? Verse
0: 7. Come, let us. You hear how God is talking like them? Here's what we're going to do in response to what you have done. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. What an ingenious thing that God does. There are are other examples of how God divides by coming down and just shattering and destroying a people. Here, what does God do? He comes and he makes it so they are no longer of, of one language and one lip. No longer are they going to have common words and common ideology. He comes and does a work where he splits that that all up. So here they are, right? They're all speaking the same language, thinking the same way, trying to uh, accomplish their their work. And then one moment they're they're being productive, and the next moment, nothing is getting done because they cannot understand. One another. You've experienced this on a small scale when you call your cell phone company and they outsource you to some country where you cannot understand what the person on the other line is saying, and you know you're not getting anything done in that conversation. You can't understand each other. There's a language barrier. And so the people begin to, to, to not have the abilities that they have because God came and confused their language, and so today. What do we call it when someone is speaking rapidly and foolishly and incomprehensibly? They are babbling. Just babbling. And so verse 8, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. So what we find is what we read in chapter 10 was not a testimony of man's faithfulness to obey God's commands, was it? What we read in chapter 10 was a testimony of God frustrating man's plans to see that his will was accomplished. A couple points. A couple conclusions. A couple things to think about. Number 1, real simple. A godless city is really not great. <laughs> I just said real simply, right? I tried to make it sound, you know, cooler. We're smarter. A godless city is really not that great. It's empty. It's empty. A godless city is not great. It's empty. A godless people are not great. They are empty. It may look great. A godless nation is not great. A godless nation is empty. Anything is empty without God. You are empty without God. Augustine said, Thou hast formed, he said to God, Thou hast formed us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in Thee. So no matter how great a city is, no matter how great a nation is, no matter how many great things it has going for it, if it's godless, it is empty. In order for a soul to be great and satisfied and content and joy, in order for a city to have this, in order for a a nation to have this, in order for a civilization to have this, it must have God. It must have God. But what the temptation for sinful man is, is to do great things without God. To do great things without God. To build our heaven on earth. Friends, there is no heaven on earth. There is no heaven on earth. I know great things will happen and you'll say like this is I mean, I will eat something and I will say, this is heaven on earth. I have died and gone to heaven. And that is totally not true. Okay, and I'm being sarcastic when I say that. Right, what are the bookends of your Bible? First two chapters, last two chapters. Okay, I mean there is paradise. In between is not paradise. Paradise was, paradise has been lost, okay, and paradise will be regained. But we are we are in between. But what do we try to do? We try to make a heaven on earth. We try to create a a paradise on earth. We've been trying ever since we got kicked out of the Garden of Eden to bust our way back in. And this will never be the case in a godless society. And friends, we live in a godless city. We live in a godless nation. We, 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 We live in a place where there are many great things. But biblically speaking, it is not great. Because godlessness is not good. And all of the wonderful blessings that we have, like freedom and opportunity and liberty and on and on and on. They pale. They pale in comparison to godliness. And we live in a godless place. The second point I would make is that alarming to some, I think. This is also very clear. Godless cities will not last. They will either change or they will disappear. Godless cities will not last. You saw it with the city that Cain made, the godless city Cain made. That didn't last. In fact, Cain's sin permeated until the whole world. Every inclination was the heart, only evil, all the time, unrestrained, no law. God sent the flood to frustrate that wicked plan. God sent a flood to end that godless city. And now we see God come in a very different way, but he brings judgment on this city of Nimrod, this city of Babel. Because God promised never again to let man's sin reach that great extent. And now here's another example of God doing that when he comes and and breaks up this ungodly civilization that will not last. James Jordan says this. False, rebellious faith will always be broken off in history. The secular humanist faith that man can do great things without God, is always doomed to frustration and failure. God permitted that faith to run its full course once before the flood, and He will never permit it again. And so Proverbs 16.8 is true when it says, The pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. A godless city, a godless nation is proud. We are a proud city. We are a proud nation. Often this proverb gets misquoted or overly condensed to say that pride comes before the fall. That's not technically what it says. Pride comes before what? Destruction. Pride comes before destruction. And friends, look and see that human history, human history is the record of. Creatures trying to build empires for themselves and trying to do this, to make a name for themselves, and none of those empires have ever endured over time. The proud may stand for a season, but sooner or later they will fall. Now, that's alarming to some of you because it is very clear to you that you live in a very proud and godless city. And it is true. It is true. We are Babel. Building monuments to ourselves. Making a name for ourselves. Uniting together for our purposes, not God's. Removing God's Word. Removing God's law, removing God's people, removing God's ways, putting laws in place to restrict the going forth of God's word. That is Babel. So in closing, to give you something in a way to respond to this, there is so much I could say, I'm sure. And probably even some better things than what I will say. But let me just give two things in response to this. One of them is not arm yourself and get off the grid. (laughs) Though there may come a point. (laughs) Because that is the temptation, right? There's doom and gloom talk. Swing by Costco and get every canned good. You can snatch up and start building a bunker in your backyard when you get home. All right, well, let's get a little more down to earth. Number one, pray. I really hope that you don't hear that as a cop-out answer. We tend to because we just... We don't get, it seems how significant prayer is and how important prayer is and and believe that prayer is God's means that He uses to change a people. So we must pray. We must pray for leaders. We must pray for lawmakers. We must pray for revival. We must pray for revival throughout our godless city because there is as there has always been there's a remnant right a remnant like a, a a small piece there's a remnant of people in america for example and in the church who actually love jesus and actually believe the gospel and actually want to obey Him and enjoy Him more than anything else on the planet and want to proclaim Him. There is a, a remnant, and as the Spirit works and that remnant grows and the tipping point changes, you move towards revival. And so we pray for revival. Not banner-waving, tongue-speaking, flips-off-of-stage, glitter-from-the-ceiling revival, but Hearts enlightened, souls filled by the Holy Spirit, truth proclaimed, new creation, revival. We want that. We should pray for that. We want that. Do we pray for that? We should pray for mercy. We should pray for mercy. Why hasn't our flood come? I don't know. Why hasn't God come down and confused us? I don't know. Being merciful now, God, be merciful. Be merciful. Father, we don't want to be an example of judgment. None of us do. Well, we would love to be an object and an example of your mercy. Change our hearts, change the hearts of these people. We pray. And number two, be godly yourself. Here we are in a godless city, in a godless nation. We must be godly. We must be. Listen, to all the ways we're described is we're a city on a hill. We're, we're a godly city within a godless city. This is who we are Is the church. City on a hill, right? Uh, we're like a lighthouse. Okay, We're salt of the earth. Seasoning it, preserving it, this is who we are supposed to be god 's witnesses, god 's ambassadors, making disciples of all nations and teaching them to obey all that the Lord Jesus has commanded. this is what God has called us so we must ourselves look look inwardly and look look at yourself. we must be godly people because here 's what can happen when you live in a godless city, you can look godly when you 're not really godly the backdrop is just pretty bad and that's how we all evaluate ourselves or by human nature which is we compare ourselves to others oh so lined up against that guy I'm doing pretty good yeah I'm godly I'm at church every Sunday very godly not like him, I'm not like him. When you live in a godless city where there's so much godlessness where just God is not talked about, he's not proclaimed, he's not obeyed, it can be very easy to to settle for this downgraded godliness that is really no godliness at all. Godliness is is a life permeated by God not a life that is compartmentalized and i'm godly here i'm godly there i'm godly on sunday i'm i'm godly with my family i'm i'm godly at work i'm god is your family godless is your work godless is your work godless is your free time godless is your vacation godless is your thought life godless are your weekends godless are your parties godless? There's so much that we do, and there's so much to our life. And if we we're to be a, a godly people, then every facet of our life is to be oriented toward God. And many of you may discover that when you say, Search me, O God, and know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You will discover that there is much that is ungodly in your life. Is God a part of everything? Is God's Word applied to every area of your life? Do you believe that you exist for God Or do you believe that God exists for you? I wish we would really ask ourselves that question and really think about it. Do you believe that you exist for God? Or do you believe that God exists for you? What monuments are we trying to build? What is the goal of our life? Is it to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Or is it to exalt ourselves and to make a name for ourselves? Are we more concerned with God's name to be praised or are we more concerned with our name to be praised? I'll close with an illustration that demonstrates how I see in my own life that I'm so tempted to have my own name be praised. I battled with it this week and didn't even know I was battling with it until this morning. Then I realized it. So to start the illustration, I need to brag about my son, Jackson. So let me tell you a little bit about my son, Jackson. Uh, Jackson is six years old and he played baseball this year. And I've been living vicariously through him. The first half of the season, he couldn't even play. Because he broke his hand and he was in a cast. So he missed the first half of the season and 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 wasn't able to practice with the team. And it was his first year ever playing baseball. But he played so well the second half of the baseball season that they invited him to all star evaluations. I was so excited. All star evaluations. So we go out there this last week and it's Tuesday night. And they've got like thirty kids. They bring out six and seven year, five, six, seven year olds, and they're going to choose twelve, and they run them through all these drills, and they evaluate them. And so this whole time, I am an anxious and nervous wreck sitting there. And you know what I'm doing? This is honestly. This might frighten some of you. Seeing in my heart right now, I am sizing up all the other children. I am sizing them up. I am comparing them to my son. I am I am weighing them against him. Like, there's no way that kid has a shot. I don't even know why he's out here. He's wasting the coach's time. And I, I'm really I'm thinking like this, and I'm thinking this way because I want to see I want to see Jackson succeed. So then yesterday we have closing ceremonies. It's a really big deal. Everybody comes out. All the parents come out. They give out trophies and awards, and and, and then they what they do is they announce the all star team. This is it is brutal. This is brutal. Like we we teach kids early. Hey, you're gonna lose a lot in life, so let's get you started right now. And so they line up all these evalu- evaluated kids, and then they call the twelve names that made it, and the rest just cry and go home. <laughs> That's how they do it. I don't have a problem with that, by the way. So here they do, and they, they, they rattle off the, the list. And so I'm standing there next to my wife, right, Just dead to the world. Listening to these names. It's just a mess inside. Later, we say we're, like, we, 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 we're hardly holding it together. And they go down the names. And then the fourth name, Jackson... Myers makes the all-star team. First year of baseball, broken hand the first half, beat the odds. What a little stud. Oh man. So we start cheering, yelling. I don't hear any of the other names they call. All the kids come over and then they've got a then they've got a meeting right in the middle of the field. That is for those who made the all-star team. And so here's Jackson, and he starts heading back to the middle of the field. And as he's walking away from me, guess what I see that just stirred up so much joy in my heart? You know what it was? It was the name on the back of his jersey. Myers. And you know what? If he would have wanted to put a jacket on in that moment... I would have said no way. You know why? Because I want everybody to see that there's a Myers boy in that huddle. Now, first, let me say, I am not saying that that all of that is sinful. I'm not even saying that all my thoughts or, or emotions were sinful in that or that I regret much of that. I don't. You can figure out which I do and don't approve of. But, but here was my conviction. My conviction this morning is that in, in that moment, my name was my priority. And in that moment, the glory of my name was most important to me. And in that moment, for me, it went beyond I'm proud of my son. And it was, I love the people see that name. And I thought, am I not, in those moments, imitating those in Babel? Who want to make a name for themselves. So friends, my hope and my prayer is that our chief concern would not be to make a name for ourselves in this godless city, but that God's name would be great. Not to us, but to Your name be the glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You know that we are a wicked, sinful people. God, we are new creations. We are also your saints. The new is gone. The old has come. We've been filled with your Holy Spirit. We are forgiven. We are washed clean. And we are sinful still. And there is still cleansing that needs to be done. And there is remaining sin that we still fall prey to, God. So, Lord, we ask you again that you please forgive us for our sin that You search us, O God, and reveal to us any wicked ways in us and lead us in another way, the way everlasting, the way that brings joy to Your heart and glory to Your name. God, in our closing time together, our hope is that You'd be glorified. We pray that You'd be glorified through the ministry of Your Word to our souls. They would be encouraged, convicted, admonished, whatever needs to happen, God you know best. but may your spirit use your word effectively in our hearts now. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.